Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rapplett. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the biggest issues in the area of corporate regulation is always audit. And in recent years, we've seen uh, an increasing focus on audit quality. Now, one of the things that people listening to this podcast may not necessarily know is that there are documents called auditing standards that set up the way in which auditors ought to behave and what judgments they need to make in the audit process. An element of this is um, the management of the quality of what auditors do. So joining me today to explain some new new documents, some new changes, refinements to audit quality standards are a couple of members of the, the team at the Auditing and Insurance Standards Board, Matt Zapula and Renee Herman. And they're both, they're both experts in their own field. Thanks, guys, for joining me. Uh, thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. Now, Matt, let's start with you first. Um, the auditing framework is rather rather large. There are suite, suite of standards. Where do these quality management standards we're talking about fitting well tom thanks very much for the opportunity to talk about this topic today and it might seem like a fairly dry one to the non-auditors and accountants in the in the world but um uh very happy to, to give a bit of a framework as you say the the quality management standards that have just recently been revised by the AUASB underpin all of the other auditing standards that exist so there's well over 50 different auditing standards that apply to different types of audit engagements um, and uh, or, or apply to different aspects of an audit engagement, such as there's a special auditing standard on documentation, there's a special auditing standard on internal controls, there's a special auditing standard on how the auditor evaluates post-balance state events, etc. But underpinning all of those standards are a set of what we call uh, quality management standards. They've recently been updated. Previously, the standards in question were known as quality control standards. And they took a very compliance-based approach, which effectively said that a firm, an accounting firm that does auditing or assurance work, had to have certain things in place uh, to underpin their ability to do the work. Uh, now, the new standards, which are known as quality management standards, uh, effectively allow a firm to put in place their own quality management system aligned to the types of engagements that they do uh, and the risks that they face. Uh, and the idea is it's supposed to underpin audit quality uh, that the firm uh, operates under in all of the work that they do. One of the challenges in looking at the, the framework of regulation for auditors is that there's some crossover with the ethical ethical standards, isn't there? Um, what crossover is there with the quality management standards as they currently exist and the ethical framework that is developed separately and to some extent distinctly by the um, Accountants Professional Ethical Standards Board? Tom, it's a great question. And it's very clearly articulated in our standards that these two sets of um, auditing and ethical and professional standards do uh, are meant to work together and within the body of the AUASB's audit quality uh, management standards, um, we require the profession, professional or the firm to make sure that they're complying with the relevant ethical and professional standards under that framework. So if we think about topics like independence, 
conflict of interest, um, et cetera. There are clear guidelines within the body of our standards, which refer the member firm or the individual to the relevant ethical standards that are put out by the APSB. When we have been revising the quality management standards here in Australia, we've been doing that in absolute collaboration with the APSB to ensure that all of the um, requirements are all uh, in alignment with each other, uh, with the ultimate goal that uh, firms and auditors and accountants who apply these standards hopefully uh, do so in a seamless fashion going forward. It's also important to note, isn't it, that there's an interplay between the auditing framework, these standards particularly today that we're discussing, and also the Corporations Act, isn't there? And how, how do these standards fit in with what the Corporations Act requires of p people who audit um, yeah, Corporations Act entities? Well, the first thing to note is that these stand, the standards that we're responsible for, the AUASB, apply to audits of all different entities, not just entities that are covered by the Corporations Act. So obviously companies are, are uh, governed by the Corporations Act, but, but our auditing standards apply whether you're dealing with trusts, whether you're dealing with not-for-profit organisations, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Corporations Act is only one aspect. There's actually many other aspects of other legislative or regulatory requirements that a firm may have to consider depending on the nature of the audits that they do. But obviously when it comes to you know, listed entities and, and large corporations, um, most of them obviously fall under the auspices of the Corps Act in one way, shape or form. So there's probably a number of different elements that the Corps Act applies to audits and our standards. Again, we have made sure that our standards reflect the Corporations Act wherever possible, um, ensuring that uh, in the body of applying our standards and considering the, the requirements of the quality management standards that the auditor and the audit firm is applying the Corporations Act requirements consistently uh, when also adopting our standards. Uh, we don't mandate how firms do that in the body of our standards. Um, we you know, leave it up to the firm to interpret which particular elements of the Corporations Act are relevant to them, but we very much signpost that that's a requirement that the firm needs to do when they're setting up all of their audit um, firm policies and methodologies, etc. If we look into the engine of these document, these particular quality management standards, if we lift the bonnet up, what do we actually see? What's different? What's new? Well, I think um, Rene is probably a better place to, to go through some of the detail, Tom. But let me give you an overview. And I alluded to it in my opening comments. The previous versions of these standards had a very much a checklist-based approach, which didn't differentiate between whether you're a large firm, a small firm, whether you did listed entities or non uh, listed entities, you know, effectively had a series of standard requirements. Um, the new standards have totally flipped that on its head. Uh, they now allow a firm to create a customizable quality management system that's relevant for their firm. Uh, and so that's been the main change. Um, uh, and the idea behind that is that it gives ownership of quality uh, to the firm itself. They, you know, they're responsible for setting up the, the parameters and the policies and the uh, arrangements of their firm, which are going to both achieve the right outcomes for them from a quality perspective, but in hopefully an efficient and effective fashion. So uh, acknowledging that there is an additional you know, burden to implement these initial standards as they get, uh, get adopted. Uh, but the idea is that we'll get a much better outcome 
uh, for firms that they'll be able to put in place quality management systems that are that are tailored and more appropriate for the clients that they do. In the case of the large firms, the big four firms and, and you know, national firms, you know, they'll rely on their global networks to do that and they'll have global policies that see that. Um, if you're talking about a small firm that works on a small number of audits, that means that they you know, hopefully will be able to identify something that's you know, relevant to them. But perhaps Tom, um, you might want to pose a few questions to Renee about some of the specifics that have changed in relation to the standards uh, compared with their previous versions. I think, yeah, we've covered a lot of the general material. So Renee, what are the uh, key takeaways from the new documents? What are the things people need to look out for? Thanks, Tom. So the first thing that I would say is that these uh, three new slash revised standards are really uh, interrelated. So you need to be looking at the three standards holistically, saying that the one standard, ISQM2, which is about engagement quality reviews, that's more what if you're at the larger end of town, that's, that's your engagement quality review for your listed entities. So you've really got three standards. You've got ASQM1, which is your overall firm quality management standard. So that is not audit specific. It ultimately addresses a firm's responsibility for managing the quality of engagements. Those engagements cons consist of audits, reviews, agreed upon procedures type engagements. So it's very broad. Uh, the revised ASQM1, as Matthew said earlier, the real shift or the real change is that focus from a traditional compliance-based system to a risk-based approach. And that really allows firms to tailor their quality objectives, what their objectives are to the nature and circumstances of the firm itself. And the revisions to ASQM1, it really increases the roles and responsibilities and accountability of firm leadership. So it really places central focus on governance and leadership. Uh, for example, it encourages leadership to evaluate every single year whether that system of quality management is actually uh, achieving its objectives, and uh, if not, to take action if necessary to, to address and to achieve its objectives. Um, ISQM2, that is the Engagement Quality Review Standard, and that standard addresses the appointment and eligibility of a engagement quality reviewer. And that's again for all engagements uh, subject to an EQR review. And who is subject to an EQR review is set out in ASQM1. Hence why I say the interrelated nature of, of the standards. So this quality review standard, it, it extends the scope of engagements that's subject to a review. Uh, in addition to the audits of those listed entity, um, it's, it's for firms to also determine who may need uh, 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 an EQ review. So it's not just for listed entities, firms can, can increase the scope of those, of those engagements based, based on, risk, on risk factors. Um, the standard also enhances who can do such reviews and what those reviewers' responsibilities uh, are. 
And ultimately, those reviewers are responsible for the overall performance of that, of that review. And they determine the nature and timing and extent um, of the work that, that they, need, they need to do. And the third standard in the suite is ACER 220. And that's the quality management for on the actual ground, on an actual audit engagement. And that's the standard that deals with the engagement partner and the team's responsibilities for managing uh, audit quality on an actual audit, audit engagement. Um, yeah, so, so those are the three standards, Tom, and those are really the key, the key, uh, are the key changes. What I did want to highlight is the new ACER 220, a fundamental change is the definition of engagement team and who is captured by these standards. So ultimately, any individual that performs any audit procedures on an audit engagement would be captured by the standard. So anyone doing those audit procedures needs to be appropriately directed and supervised by the engagement partner or their assignees. So regardless of where those individuals are located, regardless of how they're related to the firm, if somebody is undertaking procedures on an audit engagement, they are subject to being directed, supervised and work reviewed by the engagement partner. Uh, there's one thing I'd like to tease out with you, and that's a really good overview, but there's one little thing I want to tease out with you because there's a, there, there are times when we talk about prescription and then we talk about uh, principles-based um, standards, and then it can confuse some people. Can you explain what we mean about, uh, about that in the context of these particular standards, you know, in terms of prescription versus principles? So the prescription, uh, uh, Tom, is, for example, uh, if I look at ASQM1, so that is the firm-wide standard. So that firm-wide standard would have certain objectives, quality objectives that must be met. Okay. And those quality objectives are set out in the standard. How you achieve those objectives, how you go about achieving those objectives, that is subject to judgment. So that is where your firm or engagement partner's judgment. So that's when it's not rules-based. It's ultimately meeting an objective and how you meet that objective is, uh, is where, where it is not rules-based, it's principles-based. So it's the idea of what you need and you need to go about determining the best way to get there. Okay, it, it also poses some challenges, I guess, uh, in principle, um, when people are looking at uh, standards that set an objective rather than a checklist of things to be done, it, who makes a decision in an enforcement space? And Matt, you might want to come in here uh, on how the objective of the standard is actually met. Yeah, it's certainly something that uh, we consider closely when we're looking at the standards, Tom, um, acknowledging that uh, 
these standards, you know, do in some cases have the force of law and overseen by uh, ASIC in their role as regulator. So particularly when you know, they're dealing with Corporations Act audits and listed them to the audits, they will not only look at the conduct of individual audits, but they'll also look at um, the uh, firm's quality management processes and quality management systems. Uh, so, so it's certainly something that, that we keep close to our mind around the, the, the enforceability of these standards and making sure that uh, we're not setting a bar that's too high or something that is too, um, whilst, they, whilst our standards, as Renee and, um, described, are principles-based, at the end of the day, you still need to you know, be able to provide um, practical application guidance as to how the expectation of when they're put in place. There's a, and there's a lot of judgment involved in application principles, but there's probably also some judgment involved on the side of those coming in afterwards to look at what was done and whether it achieved the ends, which is always interesting. Now, auditing standards as accounting standards go through a due process, uh, Matthew. Uh, what are the uh, things that have recently changed in the audit board's due process? Um, and how is that going to benefit the audit board in getting feedback from people? Tom, I might start with a good, you know, we're talking about the quality management standards, and I think they're a really good example of where at the international level, they've been, you know, sort of, they've had five, six years of discussion and deliberation. And, uh, and so what's happened in Australia is we've taken the international standards and we've now applied an Australian sort of overlay to them, looked at where they needed to be changed and adopted them. Um, because our due process, we have a mandate from, or a direction from the Financial Reporting Council, which is the um, body within Treasury that oversee the role of the standard setters, both the accounting and auditing standard setters. And that mandate says that effectively we should be adopting the international standards um, as a base from which to draw upon and only differing from uh, the auditing standards that are released globally where there's a genuine um, reason to, to, to do so in the Australian context. And at a board level, we've adopted a policy, what we call a conformity policy, where effectively we look at the international standards and we say, okay, well, we would only ever change them in Australia is if, is if there's a regulatory or legislative reason um, that, that's inconsistent with the global standard or something that's unique to Australia or if we have what's um, called a, you know, a reason that's a, uh, an implementation issue. So, you know, a, a common practice in Australia that is different to the rest of the world that uh, requires a customization to uh, the equivalent of the international standards. It's very important because we want to ensure there's commonality with the rest of the world. Auditing is a global profession, not only in terms of you know, the larger firms who operate on multinational clients, but also, uh, you know, various um, um, you know, smaller firms and smaller practitioners who operate on uh, clients that operate across different borders, et cetera. So uh, we, are we want to ensure that Australian auditors are not disadvantaged by having additional onerous requirements that may not be relevant uh, um, uh, in other parts of the world. And wherever possible, we try and align our standards with the international equivalents. Um, we go through a very, very robust process internally to review the international standards, not only um, when they're released, but as they're being developed. And Renee, who's on the podcast with me, 
uh, assists um, the international board as one of their technical advisors, uh, providing input into the development of international standards. We're very actively involved in the exposure process that happens internationally and do outreach with various stakeholders as international standards are being developed. And then subsequently, you know, so when we get to the point where an international standard is being um, approved, hopefully we've had ample opportunity to provide Australian input into those standards. Because from an ideal point of view, because we are mandated by the FRC to adopt the international standards, the time to have influence, the time to um, give feedback on the standards is when they're being deliberated on internationally. Yep. Uh, you know, we don't necessarily want to be, you know, sort of taking standards internationally that aren't practical here in Australia. And we've been really actively involved in that. We've got very clear, you know, policies and guidelines on our website. I won't bore everyone listening with those now about what they are, but effectively a very clear process around um, how that due process works. When it comes to the mechanics of how the board operates and how uh, we, you know, go through the process of exposing to Australian stakeholders, we've actually just done a total revamp of our, um, what we call our due process framework, Tom. Uh, and I'm pretty happy to put my hand on my heart and say to any stakeholder, anyone who's listening, that you know everything the AUASB does is very transparent. There's ample opportunities for stakeholders to be part of the process and provide input, uh, and uh, and that's all very transparently put yeah. uh, in, in clear detail on our website. So you've got um, uh, those guidelines, the changing processes. Uh, available in PDF format on the website. Where can people find it? Our website is www.ausb.gov.au, Tom. And we're happy to take on any feedback, any questions. Um, uh, the website, uh, the, the email address that uh, people contact us on is inquiries at ausb.gov.au. Uh, while we're talking about things people can respond to. Is there anything particularly active at the moment that they uh, should, anyone listening who uh, is a bit inspired to jump on the board website should go looking for? Look, I, there's a couple of little um, conforming amendments type things, which are probably more you know, specific to um, uh, technicians. I won't bore everyone with them. I think the big item on the uh, horizon for us here in Australia, Tom, is the introduction of what's called an, an LCE standard, which is for less complex entities. So similar to what's happened in the accounting fraternity where they have a set of a standard that, that governs IFRS for SMEs, the IWSB internationally is looking at doing something similar where they're potentially creating a unique auditing standard that would apply for less complex entities. So that's due to be uh, published internationally mid-year. And so from an Australian perspective, we'll be working very closely and putting out um, you know, materials and doing outreach in relation to how uh, that may apply in the Australian marketplace and feedback to the international standard. There's a number of items, however, also that are being debated at the international level. Uh, so Rene, I might throw back to you if you wanted to give a quick overview considering your role as the technical advisor with the IWSB around what are the main things being discussed and debated internationally in addition to the LCE standard. Thanks, Matthew. Um, yes, so a lot on the IWSB agenda. Um, two newish topics that have arisen on the IWSB agenda, and that is really through 
global pressure and global feedback from stakeholders, including our stakeholders here in Australia, are the topics of growing concern and fraud. And uh, a, a little while ago, the IAASB had issued a discussion paper uh, seeking feedback on the growing concern and fraud standards. And the AUASB did significant outreach on that and did a submission to the IAASB along with many other jurisdictions and, and, and many other stakeholders. Um, so the IAASB is working through the feedback that they received on that discussion paper with the view to see where the standard setting needs to go in, in terms of those two standards. Uh, the, other, um, the other item that is well underway is the revision to ISA 600, that is the growth audit standard. And again, that is a significant revamp to that standard, becoming really special considerations. So not, uh, not regurgitating everything else in the other suite of standards, really focusing on the things that are different and pertinent to group audits and really coming from a risk-based perspective. Um, so, so a little bit of a, of a top-down approach, where's the risk uh, from a group perspective? Uh, the other issue uh, being debated is audit evidence um, leading to uh, what standard setting work may happen in that uh, ASA 500 audit evidence space. So, uh, uh, and, and, and the final topic is, is CUSP. So the CUSP project at the IAASB is really a project around complexity, understandability, scalability and proportionality of the existing suite of standards. So that's in terms of having a look at how the standards are drafted, consistency in language, how examples are done, how they use tables and boxes, how much application material is there, um, just the general that understandability and consistency across the suite of standards. Because as we've seen, uh, of late, the standards are certainly getting longer and a lot more, a lot more complex coming out of the IAASB. So, um, so those are the main topics uh, that are up for discussion and moving forward uh, at the IAASB. Thank you, Tom. Dan, it's interesting that broadened a going concern to the big issues that have been around for a while. Uh, uh, creeping back onto the AISB agenda. Um, that's been really, really fascinating, and I'm sure the listeners out there will get a fair bit out of it. Um, Matthew, can you get, just repeat the website again where people can duck over and have a look at the audit board's work? Yes, Tom, www.ausb.gov.au. Now, I've been joined today by... Matt Sapula and Renee Herman from the Auditing and Assurance Standards Board here in Australia. And we've been talking about new quality management standards that are designed to sort of help improve the quality of audit over a period of time. Matt and Renee, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Tom. Absolute pleasure. And, and hopefully we can talk again soon.